been looking forward to uh, being with you, and I hope that we will have something to say that will be a benefit, a blessing to you. This morning, I want us to think together about the family of God. And as we think about the family of God, I want us to celebrate the fact this morning that we are the family of God. Because when we are talking about the family of God, we're talking about the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, If I'm delayed, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the church of God, which is the house of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, I won't dazzle you with the Greek language, but the word house there, as in the English language, uh, we can use two different ways. We sometimes refer to the house as the residence in which we dwell as a family, but here it's used in the other sense in that the church is the family of God. And in this family of God, we are blessed to have a wonderful heavenly Father. For you and I just to be able to say, our Father in heaven. Matthew 6 verse 9. How precious that is. And we also have a wonderful elder brother. The Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7 and 25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. We have a wonderful Heavenly Father. We have a wonderful elder brother. But what I want to focus on this morning is the fact that we have each other in God's family. That we have brothers and sisters in the Lord. I want to share this poem with you. You will notice we say brother and sister around here. It's because we're a family, and these folks are so dear. When one has a heartache, we all share the tear and rejoice in each victory in the family so dear. From the door of the orphanage to the house of the king, no longer an outcast, a new song I sing. From rags to riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here. Praise God I belong. I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed in the blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm part of the family. The family of God. How blessed we who are Christians are to be part of the family of God. Now to aid us on our journey this morning, I want to pose ten questions. You know, a preacher usually has three points and he preaches too long. And you say, oh no, that big preacher from Middle Tennessee, he's going to bring ten points. But we'll move them around quickly. Ten questions. The first question is, is every member of your family important? Oh, absolutely. You're, you, you love your mother, you, you love your father, you love your brothers, you love your sisters, you love your spouse. 
You love your children, all those grandchildren. We love them. And in God's family, by the way, we even love Uncle Hezzy. Now that's the unique character in my family. You know, the member of the family that sometimes you had to put your hands over the kids' ears. And sometimes you had to hustle them out of the room. And Everybody's got an Uncle Hezzy. Or an ain't many in their family. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, we even love them. And you think about in the family of God. There are no ugly stepchildren. There are no second class citizens who are always on probation. Just brothers and sisters. And God forbid that we should ever say, I have no need of you, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 21. We need each other. Every member of the family is important and deserving of our love. Second question. Does every member of your family have family responsibility? Well, yeah. Husbands have responsibilities. Wives have responsibilities. Parents have responsibilities. Children have responsibilities. The same is true in God's family. And the church, God's family, is most blessed when each member of the family meets his or her responsibilities. Venture with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and you will find in verse 16 that Paul, using a different metaphor, he's talking here about the body, but we're using the family, but listen to what he says. For whom the whole body joined and knit together according by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I, I want to emphasize that idea that what every joint supplies and every part does its share. Does every member... Of your family have family responsibility? Yeah. It's true in God's family too, isn't it? Third question. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, that's the question that Cain posed to God in Genesis chapter 4 verse 9, right? Where is Abel your brother? Cain said, I don't know. That was a lie. And then he said, am I my brother's keeper? As if to deflect responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? No. Not in the sense in which the Hebrew word there was used. The Hebrew word shamar means to be a herdsman or a keeper. I should not desire to ride herd or in a self-righteous way act like my brother's keeper. Those folks do a lot of harm in the church because they got their halo on way too tight. No, I'm not my brother's keeper. Not, not in that sense. We don't need keepers in the church. They do too much harm. But I think the better question is this. 
Am I my brother's brother? Am I? Yes. God wants us to love as brothers. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. And here is a simple fact. And by the way, you can be turning to 1 John 4 for this point. Here's a very simple fact. If we love the Lord the way we should, then we'll love our brothers and sisters. And if we don't love our brothers and sisters, then we don't love the Lord. And that's not my point. That's the point that comes from the apostle of love. I've always found it fascinating that... uh, The apostle of love, as we know him, says some of the most direct things you'll find in the New Testament, the book of 1 John. I'm a little concerned this morning because we have an elder from Finley and Spartans come to check up on me this morning. No, he's not. He's a dear brother. But David and Janice know that I spent about three years teaching the book of 1 John. I really rushed through it. Because we did the life and teaching of Jesus, a parallel study of the gospel, it took 12 years and two months. I like to be a little bit thorough. But, But it's interesting in 1 John to see how the apostle of love says some very hard, very direct things that are true. And if you look in 1 John 4, verses 21 and 20 and 21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Am I my brother's brother? We are to love as brothers. How important is brotherly love? First John chapter 4 verse 8 says, And above all things, put on fervent love, which will cover a multitude of sins. Very important. And so, in the wrong sense, I don't want to be my brother's keeper. In the right sense of loving my brother, I want to love him or her. In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. Someone might stop right there and say, Now, that's not a new commandment. God's always commanded that we love our brother. Well, let's let him finish the statement. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. As I have loved you, qualified, that you also may love one another. And by this all men will know that you're my disciples. That you have love one for another. Are we known for that? We should be. The folks ought to say, you know, those folks down at Midway, they sure do love each other. That's the way we want to be known. Let's move on. Question number five. How am I to love my brother? We've established that we're to love our brother, but how am I to love my brother? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Great love chapter. Don't you love that chapter? Let me divide it up for you. 
In verses 1 through 3, Paul talks about the priority of love. It's the most important thing. In verses 7, or verses 4 through 7, he talks about the prescription of love. He describes it to us. And then in the remainder of the chapter, verses 8 through 13, he talks about the permanence of love. But in his description of love, in verses 4 through 7, notice that love is personified. It's spoken of as if it's a person. You can put God there. But can I put me there? Can you put you there? It says love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity. But rejoices in the truth. Uh, bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. I ran across a bulletin article some time ago that I thought it was interesting because it speaks of love uh, from a motivational perspective, from motivational statements. It's using 1 Corinthians 13, what I just read, as the basis. And this is the motivational thought. I'm patient with you because I love you. I am kind to you because I love you. I am not jealous of you or boastful about myself because I want you to have what is best and I love you. I don't want my pride or ego to cause me to be rude because I love you. We do not have to do it my way or go, go where I want to go because I love you. I must not be angry in sin because I love you. I'm not going to keep a running total on your wrongs because I love you. How am I to love my brother? Think about it. With what do we associate family? We associate family with love, with understanding, with, accept with acceptance. Listen, my brothers and sisters, to this very pen these very penetrating questions. If this is not a place where tears are understood, where do I go to cry? If this is not a place where my spirit can take wing, where do I go to fly? If this is not a place where my questions are asked, where do I go to seek? If this is not a place where my feelings can be heard, where do I go to speak? If this is not a place where you accept me as I am, where do I go to be? If this is not a place where I try and learn and grow, where do I go to be me? I hope that helps us as we think about how we love each other as brothers and sisters. Let's go to, we're halfway, let's go to question number six. Have you ever seen a perfect family? Is your family perfect? Sometimes before we get to know families and we, we look through the window from the outside, with a, man, what an awesome family. They don't have any problem. Well, guess what? We all have families 
And we know what that involves. We know the difficulties that sometimes come with that. Now, I bring up this question because as we make the transition in the parallel to the church, the family of God, through the course of my ministry of over 48 years now, I have encountered several people who are looking for a perfect congregation. David, you ever encounter some of those folks? They're looking for a perfect congregation. And they're not going to find one. Because on the divine side, the church is perfect, but on the human side, we are fallible human beings, right? And we all have warts. And we all have our rough edges. And you put a lot of people with rough edges in close proximity to each other, and what do you have? Sometimes you have friction, right? When those rough edges rub together. If you found a perfect congregation, you wouldn't fit in. It wouldn't be perfect anymore, would it? I heard about a, a preacher that was leaving a congregation under less than ideal circumstances. And in his last meeting with the elders, he said, I'm going to find a congregation that doesn't have any problems. One of the wise elders said, when you get there, they'll have one. That's true, isn't it? When we're there. As imperfect as we are, we are the family of God. And while we struggle with our humanity, our weaknesses, our sins, our shortcomings, let's seek to please our Father. And let's struggle together. And let's support each other. I'm of the firm conviction, I'm sure you share this conviction. We don't need any more critics in the church. We got plenty of those. Boy, we can sure use some encouragers though, can't we? Now, when I say encourager, what Bible character do you think of? Barnabas. Saw everyone mouthing that. Barnabas, that's right. Now, a little side note on Barnabas. Take your Bible, and I want to show you three ways that Barnabas was an encourager. When you turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 4, and you look at verses 26 and 27, where we are introduced to him, his name is Joseph. The, the apostles gave him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And what did he do? How did he encourage? Verse 20, or 37 says, Having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. How did he encourage? He encouraged with his resources, number one. Now turn to Acts chapter 9. How did Barnabas encourage? Well, after the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and Saul had been such an enemy of the church, after his conversion, he came back to Jerusalem, and he sought to join himself to the church, and they were afraid of him. They thought it was a ruse. They, they thought he was just trying to infiltrate the ranks so he could identify Christians and persecute them. They were afraid of him. We understand that. Look at verse 27. How did Barnabas encourage 
Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. How did Barnabas encourage? First, he did it with his resources. Second, he did it with his influence. Okay. Now turn to Acts chapter 11. Great church at Antioch is established. Verse uh, 21 says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and trusted in the Lord. And in verse 22, the news of this comes to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Boy, they want to send somebody to encourage that new congregation, those, those new brothers and sisters. And who came to mind? Well, it was that old negative, no, no bird in the church. You know what again it is? It's a bird that's not rare enough. That's the one that always says, I'm again it, I'm again it, I'm again it. Well, they, that's not who they sent. Who did they naturally look to? Barnabas. And how did he encourage? Look in verse 23. And he came and had seen the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. He encouraged, number one, with his resources. He encouraged, number two, with his influence. He encouraged, number three, with his words. And these are ways that we can encourage in God's imperfect family. Always remembering that we too are imperfect. This leads us to question number seven. Is it easy to be family? Oh, sometimes it's so easy to... Uh, the birds are singing, the sun is shining, and everybody's in a good mood, and everybody's happy, and there's no issues going on in our family. And my response to that is, get real. As my friend John Dale often says, this is earth, not heaven. You have to work at being family. Am I right? In your family? In your physical family? Don't you have to work at being family? Isn't the same true in the family of God? As I suggested, we're not perfect. It's not always easy. But as imperfect as we are, we are the family of God. See, this is true in the church. Why? Because we have differences. You know, I'm not talking about punch each other in the nose, falling out differences. I'm talking about the fact that we, we just have differences. We come from different backgrounds. We are facing different circumstances. We, we have different personality types. We have different opinions. Don't you love the restoration quote? That says in matters of doctrine unity, in matters of opinion liberty, and in all things charity or love. What's the key to successfully relating to one another in God's family? Understanding. And understanding comes by living life together. 
And here's the problem. Here's the problem in 21st century America. Sometimes, the only time that we as Christians are being with each other and seeing each other is when we're at the services. That's something for us to work on. We need to know each other. Successful relating comes from understanding. Understanding comes from knowing each other. Knowing each other comes from living life together. You know what some of the very best fellowship in the world is? Table fellowship. I'm not just talking about eating. I'm talking about sitting around the table and getting to know each other. Learning about each other. I didn't know they were facing that. I didn't know they felt that way. And how different we react to each other when, when that understanding is there. I want to read a quote to you from John R.W. Scott. Listen to it. It comes more naturally to shout the gospel from a distance than to involve ourselves deeply in their lives, to think ourselves into their problems, and to feel their pain. How to care as Jesus cared. Ah, there is the rub. I like how someone else put it. To dwell above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. <laughs> I was preaching in West Tennessee, and it was, I think, vacation Bible school was going on. We had an adult speaker each night. And we had Ben Flat from Henderson, Tennessee. Ben, big Ben, I call him. He's about that tall. And we were standing in my office, which was off the lobby, and all of a sudden you could hear... Something going on in the lobby between two brothers, and it didn't sound good. And we both walked out of my office into the lobby, and there were people looking, you know, like the deer in the headlight look, and here are these two brothers, and they've got clenched fists and gritted teeth and veins sticking out, and faces are red. And Ben, you know, preacher, visiting preacher can get away with things a local preacher can't. Uh, ben, visiting preacher, out big and loud said, this is nothing like brotherly love. Oh, he said, there's nothing like brotherly love. And this is nothing like brotherly love. And those two brothers dropped their head. I don't know what their problem was. They worked it out because I think his chastisement really, really made him think about things. Turn to Ephesians 4. Let Paul talk to us about unity. I'm going to focus on the first six verses. First thing is you've got to live right. In verse 1, you're right in the margin of your Bible, right in the margin of your Bible. Verse 1, you've got to live right. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. The second thing you've got to do is think right. In verse 2, with all lowliness and gentleness. The third thing you've got to do is make the right effort. Continue in verse 2 with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the fourth thing you've got to have is the right doctrine. He talks about one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's pretty rich stuff. 
We've got to live right. We've got to think right. We've got to make the right effort. And we've got to have the right doctrine as well. Sometimes you have to go the second mile. But that's a two-way street. Because sometimes other people have to go the second mile with us, don't they? In the premarital counseling I do, I require a minimum of four hours premarital counseling before I'll marry a couple. And I don't do a lot of weddings because some couples are more interested in their wedding than they are their marriage. So they don't want to do four hours of premarital counseling. I had a guy drive literally into my carport when I lived in Hartford, Kentucky one Saturday morning. He said, I want you to marry me and my girlfriend. He was about 65. She looked to be maybe 18. I said, I'm sorry, sir, but I don't, uh, the county judge had sent them to me because he didn't want to deal with them. I thanked him later. But uh, I, I told him, I said, sir, I don't, I don't marry couples unless I do premarital counseling. He said, I don't need no counseling. I've been married three times. And I thought, four hours is not going to get it. I had to get, almost had to get the sheriff to get rid of him. But when I do premarital counseling, I emphasize to the couple that marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. You heard it all your life. That's not accurate. 50-50 says I'll meet you halfway. Well, let me tell you something. You know it if you've been married longer than three years or three days. Sometimes you have to give 75. Sometimes your mate gives 85. It's a 100% proposition, isn't it? And the same thing is true as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Look at Ephesians 4 again. In verse 31, Let all bitterness, wrath, clamor, evil speaking be put away with you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. I've got to move on. Number eight. It's an important question. That is, are you at home in the family of God? Have you found your place in the family of God? Do you have a sense of belonging in the family of God? Are you a functioning member in the family of God? Make your place, find your niche, and fill that. Read Romans chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. That talks about how we are a body, but individually we're members of that body. And then he talks about, find what your gift is. And use that gift in the body to the glory of God. Don't remain distant. Don't be uninvolved. Don't be a floater who moves from one congregation to another congregation and never takes root. And don't be bitter. Find peace. Make peace and have peace. Number nine. This is a simple one. Who gets the Father's inheritance? God's children do. Right? Right? You look at Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 18. Paul just lays it out. That we get the inheritance. And read 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. About that inheritance. 
And the greatest description of all that he gives there, uncorruptible, indefiled, does not fade away, and then he says, and it's reserved in heaven for you. Number nine, are you a member of God's family? Are you a member of God's family? I want to share some logic with you. That things being equal to the same thing are equal to each other. Now, if the church and the family have reference to the same thing or equal to each other, then how do you and I become members of God's family the same way we become members of the church? How do we become members of the church the same way we become members of God's family? Galatians 3, 26 and 27. We are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We love our Heavenly Father. We love our Lord. But let's also celebrate the fact that we are members of God's family. And we love each other. I love Lanny Wolf's song. I, I will admit to you that this song to me is a very emotional song. We're part of the family that's been born again. Part of the family whose love knows no end. For Jesus has saved us and made us his own. Now we're part of the family. That's on its way home. When a brother meets sorrow, we all feel his grief. When he passes through the valley, we all feel relief. Together in sunshine, together in rain, together in victory through his precious name. And sometimes we laugh together, sometimes we cry. Sometimes we share together heartaches and sighs. Sometimes we dream together of how it will be when we all get to heaven. God's family. Did you notice how I left the third verse out? I can hardly sing that verse without choking up because I think of so many through the years. Allison, I think of your grandparents. And though so go before us, we'll all meet again. Just inside the city as we enter in, there'll be no more parting. With Jesus we'll be together forever. God's family. We want you to be a part of God's family.